Hey, it's Stephen here. Coming up, it's our last show of the year. As you head into the holidays and regroup and refresh your mind, treat yourself with a gift that will give you an edge in 2019, a subscription to our premium service, GTM Squared. We are giving you $50 off a membership to GTM Squared with the promo code PODCAST. With a Squared membership, you can get access to all our live streams and archived panel discussions from every conference, weekly deep dives and data dumps from our writers, and regular webinars on energy trends from our editorial team. Just go to gtmsquared.com and use the promo code PODCAST for $50 off. The Interchange is brought to you by SunGrow. SunGrow is the leading pure play solar inverter supplier with a range of solutions for both solar and storage applications. SunGrow is powering the largest solar project in Washington State, as well as in Rhode Island and Wyoming. With more than 2 gigawatts of inverters shipped to the Americas, find out how SunGrow is investing in U.S. solar at www.sungrowpower.com. The Interchange is also brought to you by Wonder Capital, the leading solar investment platform. Wonder gets your commercial solar projects done fast. And if you're an investor, Wonder gets your money to projects and helps you earn up to 7.5% annually. If you want your project financed or you want to invest, you can sign up at wondercapital.com GTM. That's Wonder with a U, wondercapital.com GTM. This is The Interchange, weekly conversations on the global energy transformation from Green Tech Media. I'm Stephen Lacey in Boston. Welcome. This week, we've got our end-of-year recap with an Interchange twist. We'll offer our picks for the most overplayed and underplayed stories, the biggest gains and setbacks, and trends we wish we would have predicted. Over there in the Berkeley Hills of California is Shale Khan, my co-host. He's the Senior VP of Research and Strategy at the VC firm Energy Impact Partners. Man, it's been hard to pin you down for a schedule for this last episode. You're just bouncing back and forth so much across the country. I think they need to build podcast studios and trains and airplanes. <laughs> um, I actually think I would end up being a much more popular podcast host if I recorded these things while on the plane because I have this undying fear of turbulence despite the fact that I fly all the time but the result of that is that the only way I can distract myself from that fear is to work so I'm, I'm by far my most productive while I'm in turbulence I feel like I would actually record great audio if I were in that same situation that my obviously the people on the flight wouldn't like me that much but our dear listeners would I, I think I like your tone now you're nice and mellow I don't think we need any more edginess. Like, I get edgy enough if we have any audio problems and then I start to speed up. So you counterbalance me. Oh, yeah. It would, it would definitely be a more amped up recording <laughs> if it was while we were in the middle of a, going through a thunderstorm at 35,000 feet above the ground. It would throw all those people who listen at 1.5 or 2 times speed out of whack. Well, I hope that travel has given you some time to think about the last 12 months, the last nine of which you've spent as a newly minted venture capitalist. How's that been going? Great. Yeah, I've had to learn a whole new world and new terminology and new thinking structures. And yeah, it's been great for me. Well, let's see how that factors in to your picks for end of year stories. So in our final conversation of 2018, we're going to be covering the following topics. The story that didn't warrant the attention it got, the most overhyped story. The story that should have gotten more attention than it did, the story that's been most downplayed. The energy tech or energy sector or maybe even the personality that had the biggest breakthrough of the year. I'm purposely keeping that broad because I think there are a lot of interesting people 
and companies and sectors. So that's a broad one. Then the energy tech sector and personality that had the biggest setback of the year, uh, a notable trend you wish you had predicted. And then the last one is the most 2018 story of the year. In other words, a story that embodies the zeitgeist of 2018. Yeah, those are good topics, and I look forward to them. But before we do that, because it is the holiday season, um, I thought that we should start with a little holiday poem, because I have to say, I was um, absolutely blown away when a couple of weeks ago, randomly on Twitter, I ran across a poem written by GTM's own Dan Finn Foley, senior energy storage analyst and poet extraordinaire, um, about the state of the energy storage market in the United States. Uh, I would I would love to kick us off with it. All right. Well, lucky for you, I've got a treat. I know how much you loved that poem. So I asked Dan to record the poem for us on his phone and send it in. Hello, this is Dan Finfoli, and this is A Battery's Night Before Christmas. "'Twas the night before Christmas, and all through the wires, not an ampere was stirring, despite the desires of children who gathered round their darkened tree, wondering if Christmas lights soon there would be. When far, far away, near a humble substation, the grid sent a signal, we need more rotation, a battery stirred and came then to life, and provided the spark that ended their strife. The grid was now smart, not clunky as old, and now with no power, it's time to be bold. It called to its storage, and answer soon came. As signals were sent, it addressed them by name. On black start, on peakers, on spinning reserves. On now, my batteries, steadier nerves. On deferral, non-wires, hertz stabilization. On solar and hydro and wind integration. The lithium ions from anode now flowed, lit up twinkling lights on tree and on road. Low-watt LEDs shone on eyes now grown large, as faraway sources flexed their state of charge. The grid smiled now, it was smarter than ever. With storage online, it was really quite clever. The grid cried out gaily, or land and cross-border, Merry Christmas to all, and to all a FERC order! <laughs> I think we can just end the year on that note, huh? Oh, it's so good. We should just commission Dan to write us a poem for every holiday that's coming up on the interchange. I would, I'll absolutely contribute to that, uh, GoFundMe account. Yeah. We should have, give him a regular essay on the podcast. Maybe we're lucky to have people like Dan, on the team who, who brings a lot of joy and humor to his work. So with the mood set, then let's venture into our topics of the year. We have not debriefed each other on our choices beforehand. So let's see if we overlap anywhere. Um, First up, Shale, your choice for the most overhyped story, the, the one that didn't warrant the attention it got. So I'm picking a repeated story. This is not one story, but a series of stories uh, because it pops up over and over again. And that is every time there is a new record low PPA price. Every single time there's a new PPA signed at what's supposed to be a record low, either in the US or record low internationally, there's a bunch of articles that come out about how this is so amazing. It was a record low PPA price. Usually it's for solar. Sometimes it's for wind or a record low PPA price for offshore wind or something like that. And it drives me a little bit batty because 
you don't know anything about what's behind that PPA price. Oftentimes you don't know if there's an escalator, you don't know the length of the PPA, you certainly don't know the assumptions that went into, you know, the residual value of the project. You don't know uh, what the cost of financing was. That's often relevant in some of the international PPAs, you don't know the cost of land. Like there's just so much that goes into one of these bids that, you know, the ultimate number, which is a single number, two cents a kilowatt hour or whatever it is, just doesn't hold that much value when you're just looking at the single lowest price. Okay. So being being an editor who has overseen many of these stories, I agree with your sentiment now that these stories are getting old. Um, we've done our best to try to unpack some of the information that we can dig up on some of these PPAs, but I agree with you. Oftentimes, there's just not enough information uh, but it's great traffic. You know, people like to see record-breaking stories. Uh, it's a reminder of the, the the steady progress in this sector. And now we're starting to see these PPAs come in with storage attached, and the storage prices are extremely low and still, I believe, newsworthy when you look at the crazy low bids for Solar Plus storage. And then I foresee at some point maybe... A, an occasional win plus storage deal although you know that's that's more unclear but like i don't know i still think there's some newsworthiness here i mean don't get me started on those solar plus storage ppa prices because you know even <laughs> well, le- me, you know even less about up. those <laughs> well the problem i mean i agree with you it's amazing how cheap those bids are on the other hand you just don't no, oftentimes you don't know the duration of the storage. So sometimes you don't even know the capacity of the storage. So it'll be like a hundred megawatt solar PPA with, you know, 25 megawatts of storage. First of all, the ratio of the amount of storage to the amount of solar is super important in determining how, how much the additive cost of the storage is going to be, let alone the duration of that storage, right? A 30, 30 minute system is going to be very different from a four hour from an eight hour system. So at a minimum, like the solar plus storage PPA in location one is not apples to apples with solar plus storage PPA in location two, not to mention the possibility that the storage could be monetizing other value streams besides the PPA. Like maybe it's getting capacity value or it's playing in a wholesale market or something. Where I do think these stories uh, add some value, even without a lot of those details is when you have a utility starting to make bigger choices around long-term procurement because of these low prices, or you have a utility executive come out and say, this is saving ratepayers money, or we know that this is the future. So some kind of qualitative anecdotal context around the pricing still makes these stories newsworthy. And if you have that, to me, it's a story I'm willing to print. Yes. And related to that, I mean, things that I think are really interesting and important, like you can look at utility IRPs, their integrated resource plans, and you can just look at them year over year and see how much they change because utilities are running economic calculations in these resource plans. And we have a bunch of examples now, a couple in the Midwest, Dominion in the Southeast, where like from one year to the next, the amount of renewables in that resource plan will shoot upward, which is just an indication that in the modeling that they're doing, renewables become cost-effective or the most cost-effective. So there's lots of ways to sort of, I think, make the point that renewables are cost-effective and efficient now um, that doesn't rely on saying there was a single PPA signed and here's one number about it. So I partly agree with that assessment, 
because I agree that the coverage needs to change, but I do think it's helpful to continually report on records. You just need to put them into context. All right, all right. Enough of me attacking you for your <laughs> coverage. What's your overhyped story of the year? Well, I, I'm picking one that I thought you might pick. Uh, it's the White House's feeble attempt to save coal. The proposed notice of proposed rulemaking that would prop up coal plants and nuke plants in the name of resiliency, the legal, uh, let's say, what's what's the right word? The fishing expedition, the legal fishing expedition that the White House went on to try to gauge whether or not they could uh, use national security authority to keep coal plants open. It was all absurd. It's a charade. And we've covered it because it's wrapped up in some bigger politics within the Trump administration that are important. But I think it's generally been so highly covered that it's really tiresome. And it's a story that really hasn't actually played out. It's more speculation. And it's the the Trump administration uh, throwing out a trial balloon, if you will. And this is what they do. They distract people with policy like this and then, you know, go ahead and do something more major behind the scenes when everyone's not looking. So I thought about this one, too. And the the question we're asking is, did it warrant the coverage that it got? And I think in this case, it's dependent on whether you think from the moment the NOPER came out, from the moment that this idea of a bailout for coal and nuclear was discussed, it was never going to happen, or whether you believe that the level of coverage that it received and then ultimately the level of scrutiny that it received as a result um, killed it. Because if it's the latter, then I think it did warrant that coverage that was you know the the result of the coverage was was what ended up happening if it was just doomed from the start then you're probably right it, it's it's such a good point and it's something that you can't prove obviously and i think it's a question that a lot of journalists are asking themselves when as they cover the trump administration um so i i agree that the the Co press coverage probably did influence the outcome, although if you talk to anybody who understands energy law, the legal arguments were so flimsy that it probably wouldn't have gone anywhere. Okay, so then um, on to the flip side of that, the story that should have gotten more attention than it did. What is your choice? So mine's actually a pretty recent story that did get some attention, but I think probably should have gotten more. And that was Maersk, the shipping giant, announcing that it intends to move to zero emissions from its entire operations by mid-century. It was an interesting announcement in that it came on exactly the same day that Excel Energy, the utility, made the same announcement that they are going to voluntarily end up at zero emissions by mid-century. Um, Excel's announcement, at least from the, the stuff that I read, got a lot of coverage. Maersk got a fair bit less. Um, and they're both super important, I think. But, you know, it's I think actually Maersk might have the heavier lift there, you know, the shipping sector is a significant contributor to emissions, um, and there haven't been great alternatives to uh, emitting technologies in the shipping industry. So Maersk's saying not, you know, we're going to cut our emissions in half, but saying like, we're going to get to net zero emissions. Um, that is pretty ambitious. And, you know, it'll be on them to see if they can actually pull it off. But I thought that was a, a pretty big deal and would have liked to have seen that get a little more attention. Yeah. And, and that's that's a result of 
work from over the last five years or maybe even longer, like the last eight years. So the Carbon War Room, of course, uh, when Jigger Shaw was over there, it was like Jigger Shaw, Travis Bradford and and uh, Richard Branson. They were all focused on shipping and they made it a lot of recommendations, technological and efficiency re- recommendations. The shipping industry has started to adopt some of them. I mean, it, it didn't all, of course, come from them, but I think they p- thrust it into the public eye. And um, you know, it takes so long for companies to get to this point. It's probably the result of years and years of business advocacy. Yeah. I mean, I'd love to know. I, I, I knew that Carbon War Room was working on that a while ago. I'd love to see inside Maersk to figure out how that decision took place and what ultimately convinced them that it was possible. And, you know, I, I have no idea um, because they're they're much further away from it than Excel is. So my story is a story from late 2017 into this year. Uh, Michael Lewis is reporting on the fifth risk. His article and book about the hidden complexities of the Department of Energy and other government agencies and how they're at risk under the incompetence of the Trump administration. So the article was published in September of last year in Vanity Fair. Really good piece. Uh, The book came out this fall in October, and it digs deeper into what really goes into running big government agencies. Uh, you know, outside of energy circles, it's not really known what the Department of Energy does. They happen to manage our stock of nuclear weapons. And we are so focused on, again, the palace intrigue of the Trump administration, who's in, who's out, who's up, who's down, that we totally forget that the people chosen to run these gigantic, complicated, sometimes scary agencies under the Trump administration are people who largely have zero qualifications. And in fact, they just want to come in and shut these organizations down. And they're doing everything in their power to make decisions to to grind the gears of organizations that often are there to protect us uh, or manage extremely complicated markets. So Lewis calls it the existential threat that you never see coming. And it was, I mean, it got a lot of press because Michael Lewis is famous and he's a great writer. But you know, the political press is focused on palace intrigue, not this existential threat. I actually listened to an interview with Michael Lewis recently where he described the book in part as being uh, like a love letter to the civil service because he said, you know, what ended up happening is he just went and hung around in a bunch of government agencies for a while, DOE being one of them. And he just discovered that there are all these people who are sort of quietly working away to try to make all of our lives better. And he gives all these examples of people who like, you know, did a multi-decade project and brought it in billions of dollars under budget and like get no credit for it. And, you know, DOE is, is like that. The folks that I've known who've worked at DOE are really mission driven um, and, you know, generally very thoughtful and, and trying to do the right thing. So I thought the flip side of um, the story that he's telling, which is a negative one about the Trump administration, is one that also should be told more, which is the ways in which the civil service and in relevant to us, uh, the Department of Energy uh, just do a lot of, of high value for us. Obviously, you know, maintaining our stockpile of nuclear weapons among them. Right. Maybe if there's any good that comes out of this, it's that some people will truly understand what government does or what many of these agencies do. I got to tell you, living in D.C. for five years, I just heard story after story of the heinous bureaucracy in agencies. And it 
it made me kind of jaded. I mean, it's I truly understand the need to make government more efficient and to sometimes whittle down agencies. And uh, I am certainly not one of these people who just blindly accepts that, you know, government should take on all these roles. But Michael Lewis's reporting is pretty powerful, and it shows that many of these agencies do perform functions that no private market or private company would take on. And uh, they're completely hidden from the public view and sometimes extremely dangerous or vital. Coming up, the biggest breakthrough and setback of the year, plus the story that encapsulates the weirdness of 2018. First, a word about our sponsor, SunGrow. With more than 68 gigawatts of inverters deployed across the globe, SunGrow is now growing rapidly in the U.S. SunGrow is part of Washington State's largest solar facility that was just completed in November. The project is a 28-megawatt array that's 25 times larger than the next biggest solar array in the state. And SunGrow is committed to supporting novel solar projects like that across the U.S., With proven bankability, a dedicated 24-7 service center in Phoenix, and unique solutions across central and string inverters, find out what else SunGrow is working on at www.sungrowpower.com. We're also supported by Wonder Capital. Wonder Capital can help you, the commercial solar developer, secure financing for your project. Through its innovative underwriting platform, Wonder is financing 100 kilowatt to 5 megawatt solar PV projects, those difficult to finance ones, including those for nonprofits, community solar, virtual net metering, and PV plus storage systems. To find out how Wonder Capital can help you finance your next commercial solar project, head on over to wondercapital.com slash financing. That's wonder with a U, wondercapital.com slash financing. Now, the energy technology or sector or even a personality that had the biggest breakthrough of the year. What do you think, Shale? Okay, so I decided to pick a company, not a personality or a technology um, that, you know, I don't know that the company had a breakthrough necessarily, but I think it was a big coming out year. And that is Shell New Energies, um, the New Energies division of Shell, which we've talked about before on this podcast and has been around for a while and has been active in the new energy or clean energy market for a while. But I went back and looked at just everything that they did in 2018 and specifically just all the investments that they made. So let me just rattle through some of them. They invested in Husk Power Systems. Okay. So they invested in Husk Power Systems, which is off-grid solar in sub-Saharan Africa. They invested in a fuel cell company called High Yield Energy Technologies. They invested in a thermal energy storage company called Axiom Exergy. They invested in Sonnen, which does residential solar and storage, primarily in Germany. They invested in SunFunder, which is another off-grid solar company. They invested in Ample, which is a novel EV charging company. They invested in a company called Steesdahl, which is a floating wind technology. They acquired GI Energy, which is a microgrid company, and First Utility, which is utility in Europe. And then most recently, they made a majority investment that looks like it'll be an acquisition ultimately in a company called Cleantech Solar, which is a like a CNI solar developer in Southeast Asia. Now, that's all just in 2018, not to mention the stuff that they had done before that. So they've quickly emerged as among the, if not the most active player in investing in and building out a platform around clean energy on a global basis. And interesting to see that it's an electrification strategy. 
I mean, it's mostly renewable electricity technologies or EV charging or, you know, uh, downstream services that manage electricity in some way. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's what New Energies is about for Shell. It's it's about this is building out their electricity driven, their, their power business, which is a sort of by its nature, a clean tech business. Um, but that is interesting to see. They they talk about how they want power to be the sort of fourth pillar of their business alongside, um, I think it's oil and gas and petrochemicals. I was going to pick Shell, but for a different reason, because of Shell's sky scenario, which showed in the coming decades and by the middle of the century that solar will be the most dominant form of energy around the world. And I thought that was pretty remarkable that a, a large oil company like that saw such promise in solar. Now, that's probably not any different than what most other organizations, research outfits, companies believe. But when a company like Shell says it or when BP says it, it probably bears more weight. Uh, and I was surprised that that didn't get a lot of play. Although Shell has been advertising on a lot of podcasts recently and been pitching its sky scenario specifically. So it clearly thinks that uh, there's a good PR benefit to talking about it. Yeah, that's interesting that they're that they're promoting around it. It does make sense. I mean, you know, you'd hope that it's more than PR. And I do think that to their credit, they're obviously putting their checkbook where their mouth is, if that's the expression. Um but, you know, good on them to be promoting it as well. Interesting that we both picked Shell. I feel like this that's now it's too much of a uh, a Shell love story. No, I didn't pick Shell. I was going to pick Shell. Oh, so what do you pick? Well, I picked one that I was a little nervous that you were going to pick. Smart Home Assistants. There were also known as Smart Speakers. Uh, there were 56.8 million smart speakers sold in 2018, or at least so far this year. Um, we saw a bunch of really interesting investments. Obviously, uh, Amazon and your firm invested in Ecobee, which is a smart thermostat maker developing a lot of smart voice applications. This year, Tendril and Google developed the Talking Home Hub as a way to deepen the connection between utility and customer, and Tendril's really into a voice strategy. Bidgley, another disaggregation efficiency company, is working on a similar product. Sense Labs, another disaggregation company, another EIP company of yours, is deepening Alexa skills. Obviously, Mike Phillips, the founder there who's been on this show, has a long history in voice. So GTM Research estimates that smart home assistants connected to smart lighting and thermostats could be worth about $24 billion by 2023. And this, in my opinion, is the future of residential energy use and really the future of the internet itself. I am completely sold on a voice-centric internet, and I think that we're going to see voice-centric residential energy services as well. I will say, I mean, I obviously was already bought in on this. We've talked about it before on this podcast and Energy Impact Partners, as you mentioned, have has a number of investments that are at least partially a play around this. But here's my most recent anecdote for why this is uh, absolutely taking off. I went um, back to, I'm from Wisconsin, and I went back to Wisconsin for, for Thanksgiving, where my mother, who's retired and in her 70s, um, definitely not a technophile. Like, you know, it was a couple of years ago when she was still uh, using a non-smartphone to text and couldn't find the space bar because 
kids won't know this, but it used to be that you'd, you'd have to use the zero for the space bar when you were texting and, you know, a C would be hitting the number one, three times. Anyway, she's, she's not a technophile. Um, but I arrived home for Thanksgiving and yeah, you know, like 30 minutes after I get there, my mom just says into the air, Alexa, play Ella Fitzgerald. And it turns out that she has like three Amazon Echoes kind of spread throughout the house connected to a speaker system and a, a, a music, uh, I guess a boom box of sorts that still has a tape player in it. So like she's somehow managed to bridge <laughs> the old world and the new Whoa. world. In a way that is just really intriguing to me. Damn. Well, what's interesting about that is that it does appeal for the non-technophile and people who get them usually get a bunch of them after they've had one. And that's why so many have been sold. So we'll probably reach 50 million households in the next few years, but we're seeing tens of millions uh, sold every year because a lot of households are buying multiple. Yeah, it's crazy how fast this is This is going. Absolutely insane. Um, I, I mean, I, if you are an energy company not thinking about voice in some way, or an, let's put it this way, an energy company that interfaces with the consumer, if you're not thinking about your voice strategy in some way, then there's a problem. If Actually, if you're just a consumer-facing company in general, regardless of energy, and you're not thinking about a voice strategy, like how are people going to navigate the internet through voice? How are people going to find you? How are you going to present your brand? What does it sound like? then you're doing something wrong. And I, th- I think everybody needs to be considering how these devices are going to impact the way consumers interact with them. Uh, okay, then uh, the energy tech, the energy sector, or the person that had the biggest setback of the year. Well, once again, I decided to choose a company rather than a technology or a person. Um, and I, I choose General Electric. Oh, man, and that's my choice. Ha <laughs> ha. Well, good thing I got to go first. Okay. Uh, well, give your argument because mine's a little broader, but I want to hear your argument. Uh, mine's mine's not a broader. It's specific to General Electric, which is, you know, General Electric in the year 2000 was for a time the most valuable company in the world as measured by market cap. It was about a $600 billion company at that point. Now it's worth about a tenth of that. It's like $67 billion last I looked. Um, It's just been an absolute, and you know, not setting aside its value, right? Like General Electric was viewed for a very long time as like the iconic American company. And not only just the iconic American company, but like the most innovative large American company. Um, and of course the reputation has totally changed and the company is going through a real existential crisis. And, you know, there are a bunch of things that led up to that. So I think there has been a narrative that, that is specific to our sector that they didn't pick up on the renewables trend fast enough. And certainly there's a, a part of that. Um, they made this big acquisition of Alstom. They spent $17 billion on Alstom this French energy technology company in 2014, 2015. That was a big additional bet on on gas generation largely that has was right at a time when gas generation um, demand has been sort of flattening. And part of that is due to renewables. Part of that is due to efficiency. So, but I don't want to overstate that as a component of GE's downfall. There's a great long article in the Wall Street Journal about it. Um, a couple of weeks ago. And, you know, there, there are multiple things going on, GE Capital uh, and a bunch of other bets that didn't pan out. 
But it is still true that, you know, between um, power and oil and gas, this is not including the renewables business, energy contributes like half of GE's revenue. So it's, it is a big chunk of what's going on at GE. And they have suffered from the fact that they made this big bet on gas generation, um, selling new generators that just has not panned out as they expected it to. And they just spun off current their business arm that included smart lighting at one point battery storage a lot of their cni services they just kind of threw a bunch of distributed assets into current and hoped that it would become a business and then they shed a lot of the fat and then really focused on smart lighting but eventually they just spun off current and they sold it to a private equity firm i believe just just recently yep that is correct yeah current was on the block for a while but did finally get sold to a private equity firm. Um, yeah, and that's another example of like, you know, they were attempting something. They, they they talked about Current when they launched it as being the startup within GE and it was going to do all this innovative stuff. It was going to reinvent CNI energy management, um, you know, and it just didn't pan out. Yeah. Look, I mean, a company like GE with such an important brand and really deep expertise and some of the smartest people in the world, I, th- I think they can probably pull it around and they have a lot of experience in renewables. So if you just isolate the power side of the business, they took a huge hit, particularly because of that Alstom business and their underestimation of the, you know, the decline in the gas turbine business. But uh, if a company can turn it around, it's a company like GE. Um, you know, my choice was not GE specifically. It was the power giants, uh, more specifically GE, Siemens, and Mitsubishi. So they've all had to restructure their power businesses. Of course, GE laid off tens of thousands of people at the end of last year and into this year among sluggish demand for gas turbines. Siemens has laid off thousands. And in fact, this month laid off thousands more in its turbine business. Uh, Gas turbine sales are continuing to fall. Mitsubishi has faced similar problems. In fact, gas turbine sales are at a two-decade low. And these companies all admitted that they probably didn't foresee the coming changes in the power generation business to adapt soon enough. Um, in fact, you know, these companies are pretty arguably progressive in investing clean in clean tech. Uh, they just said that they didn't prepare for the transition fast enough. And I think that's a pretty stunning admission. The shift to renewables is significant, but it's only just beginning, right? And it proves that modest changes can have pretty deep impacts on the biggest companies in the world. So we talked about it on this show. It was covered, but kind of in isolation, like here are job layoffs. And I don't think a lot of people appreciated the magnitude of that story. Yeah. I mean, it's not over, right? Nothing has been solved or fixed for these companies yet. So it's going to be, it's going to take years to figure out how this all plays out. And one of the challenges that these companies face, and this is true also of, you know, the oil and gas companies getting into power and getting into renewables is it's not necessarily as profitable, right? So if you're, you know, manufacturing solar panels or wind turbines, your margins might not be as good as they were in a gas turbine business. Um, And in particular, in things like solar, where it's a little bit more commoditized, they definitely won't be. And so that's a weird shift you have to go through because, you know, you sort of have to do it. It's where the market is heading. Um, but you have to figure out how, you know, you're, you've grown accustomed to a certain margin, a certain level of profit. How do you maintain that in this new paradigm? That's a real fundamental challenge that I'm not sure anybody has totally solved yet. 
Well, this is why I just podcast in my closet and don't run a company, like a Fortune 500 company or Fortune 50 company. (laughs) (laughs) What's a notable trend that you wish you had predicted? Well, we've talked about it uh, before on this show, but I certainly didn't see it coming. The revolution in last mile urban mobility, specifically uh, and particularly the the introduction of dockless micromobility, scooters and bikes and things like that. You know, they're they're now in over a hundred cities uh, globally and counting. They're sort of popping up in new cities all the time. We have a bit of a hiatus in parts of the country right now because in the winter, um, there's some places where they'll just pull these things off the road. But I think as spring comes around, you know, you can expect that they're actually going to accelerate even faster because they're sitting around right now, basically trying to figure out where they're going to go to next. It's just in the, the cities it arrives in, it totally changes the landscape in the cities. Cities themselves are scrambling to figure out what to do about it, um, how to monitor, how to regulate, how to enforce the regulations they do put in place, how to charge fees, if at all, and what those fees should go toward. I mean, it's really like fundamentally changing the urban transportation landscape. Um, and it's so new. I mean, you know, these companies, the Lime and Bird that are the leaders in the scooter space, they've been around for two years or less. So it is just insane how fast this has happened. And I certainly didn't see it coming. Now, I had been reading articles about the rise in last mile mobility, more specifically electric scooters or electric bicycles. And then we did our show, but I hadn't yet to experience the surge in these um, you know, forms of mobility because it hadn't come to Boston in a big way. We have our little bike docks and so forth, but the city of Boston has pretty strict rules about what can come in. And so we just haven't seen this surge. So like weeks after we did that podcast with Emily Warren of Lyme, um, I went to Raleigh, North Carolina, and they were everywhere. And I finally realized like how insane the scooter trend was. Everyone was on a scooter. There were dozens like piled up on corners. I have to admit, it kind of pissed me off a little bit. People were zipping all around on the sidewalks and I wasn't used to it. I really hate when people ride their bicycles on the sidewalk. So the idea that there were electric scooters zipping by me really annoyed me. And, uh, you know, I truly believe in the model. I think when the regulations come together, we need these devices on the roads, but there's a lot of management that needs to take place. And I was totally stunned, even though we had talked about it when I actually saw it in person. Yeah. But did you ride one? No. Ugh. You, you can't opine about- <laughs> I like walking, man. <laughs> Sorry. I like walking. You can't, you, you're not allowed to opine about scooters until you've ridden a scooter. Because the oh, thing is, hell no, no way! I, they were zipping <laughs> by me while walking. I am a pedestrian, and like when when things are moving that fa- fast on the sidewalk, I have every right to say something. I mean, look, so I I agree with you. I mean, one thing that I've been digging into a little bit more since then is like how cities are trying to deal with this and and it's challenge for them, right? Like they they actually, cities in general, I think recognize the benefits of having these. They can reduce congestion. Um, They actually are really efficient ways to get around there. If they replace vehicle rides, they um, have a positive emissions benefit, but you know, there, there's obviously some point where they can cause more problems than benefits. There's many ways in which they can be problematic. And so, you know, it's up to the cities to figure out how to, how to ensure that they are, um, 
deployed in a manner that is positive and that that's a challenge for cities. But I still feel like, you know, it's easy to it's easy to hate on these things until you actually use one as a method of transportation from one place to another. And as you know, from us having talked about this before, I love them. I think they're great. I I put on my curmudgeon personality to make a point. I truly believe in them. They're necessary. They are important for reducing congestion. We're just at the first phase where cities are trying to figure out how to deal with them. And quite frankly, pedestrians and riders are trying to figure out how to interact with one another. So I was definitely annoyed, but I'm playing up the drama to make a point. Um, but I absolutely think that they're necessary and, and valuable. My, I, I'm going to go with electrification as well, but I'm focused on electric bus fleets. So obviously a lot's been happening with electric buses over the years, but I failed to realize just how fast the electric bus trend would take off. By 2030, according to Bloomberg Bloomberg New Energy Finance, 84% of buses are going to be electric. New buses, that is. California, of course, recently, uh, just this month actually, developed a zero-carbon bus target that will apply to new buses by 2029. 99% of all electric buses around the world are in China, where cities like Shenzhen have gone all-electric. Uh, so so this is where you can have deeper impacts through electrification simply because you can fit more people on buses, of course, and transit managers are making decisions in a more rational way than individual consumers. And again, this has been brewing for a while, but it really exploded in 2018 with a lot of new b- bus models, uh, dropping battery costs, new partnerships, transit agencies saying that this is the future, and then massive government policies that are mandating zero emissions vehicles that are obviously going to favor electric vehicles. It's something that I probably could have been more on top of. I don't know, man. I was I was all bought in on electric buses, and then now I think we're all just going to be uh, riding in boring company tunnels. Uh, for transportation <laughs> in the future. Or we can just hook scooters together. Yeah. No, no, no. I, I agree with you completely. I think, I mean, it's it's a trend that I wouldn't say it's a 2018 specific trend, right? It's been going on for a while, but there have been some really major things happening this year. That California announcement, for example, is a, is a really big one that that will represent a ton. There's also a bill in, in New York City um, in the city legislature that would mandate all new school buses go electric by a certain point. I mean, it's 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 coming fast. Um, and as we've talked about before, it's coming faster in, in buses than it is in passenger vehicles. For sure. And 2018 was when we realized just how fast that trajectory would be. So it's not a 2018 story. It's just a year when I think everyone woke up to the trend. So speaking of 2018, what is the most 2018 story of the year? A story that represented the year in some way, whether it be wacky, surprising, gleeful. It's kind of your interpretation of what the year was. I mean, I think the most 2018 thing that happened was when I opened up the Wall Street Journal online on my computer and the front page was a, a photo of Elon Musk smoking weed. That's, <laughs> that was the most 2018 thing that happened to me. Oh, I'm sorry. Actually, to be more specific, it was Elon Musk spoke smoking weed on a podcast. Yep. That's 2018 in a nutshell on the front page <laughs> of the Wall Street Journal. 
I'm shocked that this is the first time Elon Musk has come up. I'm also proud of us, too, because he's dominated the news in such a strong way that uh, it's, it's good that we're getting beyond the, the typical stories. Although I, my st- actual story is not Elon Musk. Um, mine is a little bit more serious. It was from November when we saw two extremely alarming climate change reports, one from the UN and one from the U.S. government. And all the you know cable news, uh, network news shows, the Sunday political talk shows covered it. And rather than bringing on any climate scientists, they just brought on politicos, people who want to debate the politics, people who are going to deny climate change. The worst example was when Chuck Todd brought on Danielle Pletka of the American Enterprise Institute, who straight up lied and said we had two of the coldest years in history in recent years. And she wasn't challenged. You know, Chuck Todd doesn't even know how to challenge that sort of thing. And uh, Media Matters did a tally. And they show that these shows have not had a climate scientist on for three years. So on that same show on Meet the Press with Chuck Todd, they brought Tom Steyer on later, who, you know, is a political guy. He's uh, run for office. He's a billionaire who spent money uh, against political candidates who are climate deniers or anti-clean energy. But while they asked the climate denier about climate change, they didn't even bother asking Tom Steyer about climate change, even though he was on right after and they just had this big segment on the report. So, uh, you know, it's just mind numbing in a year when scientists are telling us that we're seeing nonlinear changes to the Arctic sea ice, meaning we are well beyond the melting phase where they were only recently predicting. We're stuck in place on television news shows, and I'm just banging my head against the wall. And to me, that Chuck Todd segment tells us everything we need to know about the state of affairs in 2018. There was actually um, Catherine Hayhoe, who I think was the lead author on the the recent National Climate Assessment Report, or at least she was one of the lead authors on it, um, went on Twitter at one point in the sort of follow-up to that coming out and had a thread about basically what her experience had been um, going on cable shows. You know, she had been asked to go on cable shows a bunch of times and many times, actually, more than I realized would make any sense at all. She would go and then she'd get bumped. Sometimes she would actually record the segment and then the segment would get bumped. Other times she would go and she'd just be in the waiting room and then it would get bumped. And, you know, it's one of these things of like, you know, it just never is the top priority, I think, um, in the news coverage. And so she she just kept not actually getting on, which is just a waste of her time. And, you know, the result would be she wouldn't take some other interview because there's a limited period of time when this is in the news. And so she has to pick and choose what she's going to do. Um, it, it was it sounded sort of disheartening and it, a little look peek behind the scenes of what happens in cable news. It's unfortunate because we've been talking about this stuff for the better part of a decade now. I mean, the criticisms against television news programs for their coverage of climate change have been very loud. And there have been so many great examples of like how you could change coverage. And the political journalism complex is unable to change itself. It's based on access journalism, right? And I look, we spend a lot of time flogging journalists. There's clearly a lot wrong with journalism for its business models and the way it approaches politics, but there's a lot of really good stuff. But this, to me, is one of the darkest pieces of, of journalism that's right there out in the open for everyone to see it. I mean, it's really uh, just a 
a miserable failure on the part of mainstream journalism. Well, <laughs> that's my screed for the year. I was hoping to uh, end it on a positive note. What do you think, Shale? Give me something to feel good about. <laughs> uh, there. Well, I just learned that um, that electricity. This is actually a true thing. Apparently, electricity will make wounds heal faster. So there's going to be a new. Uh, there's some new product that that is being tested right now. That's like a bracelet, ele- electric bracelet that you might be able to use when you have a a wound that to make it heal faster. So. You know, electrify everything. Actually, electrify everything was going to be a choice of mine for a sector or an idea that had, um, you know, gotten some good play in 2018, had seen a lot of successes. Maybe the utilities need to get into the health game. Like they should just sell millions and millions of these healing bracelets and use them as demand response tools <laughs> i'm not sure you want those as a man response like all of a sudden you're gonna you're gonna turn off your healing bracelet and your wrist is gonna start hurting again just because the grid needs you <laughs> those might be inflexible load i'm not sure <laughs> stick with ev chargers and home energy management all right that's gonna do it for the interchange in 2018 we want to know your picks in the categories we outlined hit up interchange show on twitter or find me and shale there and let us know what you think we got right and wrong what are your picks and can you do us a favor to close out the year go to apple podcasts right now and leave us a rating and review it'll be your gift to us and of course we appreciate it don't forget to give yourself a gift as we close out the year you can get a subscription to gtm squared with a 50 dollars discount use the promo code podcast over at gtmsquared.com so shale Go get your blankets and teacup and saddle up to a crackling fire on your TV screen from Netflix and have yourself a fantastic end of the year. You too, Stephen. Happy holidays. May you get an electric bracelet that heals all your wounds in 2019. And a merry FERC Order 841 to you as well. <laughs> With Shale Khan, I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Interchange, conversations on the future of energy from Green Tech Media. We'll catch you all in 2019. Happy holidays. <laughs>